Thank you, Valerie. Thank you, Gresham College, for inviting me. And thank you all very much for being here this afternoon. It's a great pleasure to speak to you. Welcome to the world of shadows. Today, I'd like to talk to you about how artists use shadows in painting. And also, I would like to suggest a certain way of looking at shadows that I hope will shed some light on the deeper meaning of shadows that we encounter in painting. In the real world, we don't tend to think of shadows very much. They're temporary effects. They come and go. They change size and shape. They're here, then they're gone. Um, but shadows simply are real things that are not there. They're immaterial. They exist when light is blocked. There are so many shadows that we encounter on a daily basis that our uh, sensory processing system discards them, evaluates them, and discards them by the thousands. If we were to think about every shadow we encountered, we'd have sensory overload. We wouldn't really be able to move. And yet, shadows are tremendously useful to us. If we look at shadows, they help us to locate objects in space. They help us to navigate the world in a very literal kind of sense. They show us where the light is coming from. They tell us what time of day it is. They protect us from the sun. They shield us from being seen. Uh, they warn us of approaching danger. And if we slow down and ponder the, the scientific possibilities of shadows, uh, many, many discoveries have been made from looking at the shadows. For example, Aristotle figured out that the Earth was round by looking at the shadow of the Earth projected on the moon during an eclipse. It was Galileo using his telescope who looked through that telescope and could see that there were shadows on the moon, and therefore it indicated to him that those shadows were cast by mountains, meaning that the moon, in fact, was made of the same kind of material that the Earth was. It wasn't some crystal sphere in the heavens. Uh, there was a Danish astronomer, Ole Romer, who could see that there are shadows uh, taking place on the distant moons of Jupiter, but there was a time lag between when he could see them and when he ought to have been able to see them, and therefore he was able to calculate, this is in the 1600s, that in fact the speed of light was finite. So many different ideas have come from shadows, uh, and if we turn from science to culture, we find that shadows provide a vocabulary that we use all the time. We notice foreshadows in films and in novels, we fear the shadow of death. We have shadow cabinets and shadow ministers. We remember the shadow of a smile. We are haunted by the shadow of a doubt. The collective wisdom of centuries tells us that we should not uh, pay too much attention to the shadow when there's actually a substance to be, to be seen instead. And uh, if we read Shakespeare's Macbeth, we are told that life is but a walking shadow. So shadows are everywhere in our culture, and they're also everywhere in our thinking. We know that they are immaterial phenomena, and yet we can't help treating them as something a lot more serious. Uh, the popular song, Me and My Shadow, suggests that when you're alone with your shadow, you're not just really alone. There's something else, somebody else there with you. Uh, when we think about shadows, we tend to think about doubles and souls and strange beings sometimes with supernormal powers. Go back to the 1930s, Walter Gibson's uh, hero, The Shadow, was actually the, the, the source, the grandfather of all superheroes since. Uh, the, the Shadow is known from uh, radio shows, from pulp fiction, from films. And thanks to his famous opening lines, we have the convention uh, established in popular culture that even if a person lies, the shadow is telling the truth. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? 
the shadow knows. If we look at a movie poster such as this one, we see the shadow of the young Anakin Skywalker, but the shadow is of Darth Vader, the dark personage he's going to become. It's a shadow that foreshadows. And uh, similarly, back in the 1960s and 70s, there was a regular feature in Mad Magazine uh, where the shadow knows, and the shadows were always revealing what was going on with the interior of the person casting the shadow. So here we have the politician asking for a vote, but really thinking of himself as king. Once we perceive an object is threatening, its mere shadow will sometimes be enough to cause anxiety. <laughs> this shadow comes from an article in the New York Times uh, published last year uh, that was comparing uh, Donald Trump's relationship to the American Senate with that of Caligula to his Roman Senate. Sometimes the shadow can be more subtly metaphorical. This is an official portrait of President Bill Clinton. But there is a shadow, which is not so easy to, to see at first glance. It's uh, right there. But you can see that the, that plant really isn't casting that shadow. The shadow's coming from somewhere else. Well, the painter revealed long after he painted it and just before he died that that shadow was cast by a blue dress, a blue dress that reminded him of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And he said, let's face it, there's a, sh there's a shadow on the presidency. This is a metaphorical shadow. So this anecdote, I think, highlights the fact that shadows in real life may just be accidents of the light. But once we have shadows in painting or drawing, we have shadows that are put there for a purpose. There's a meaning. There's an intentionality behind them. Sometimes the meaning is rather simple. The shadow can be there just to say, Look at how this, power, this, this pot of flowers is convincing because it has a shadow next to it. But other times it can be a lot uh, deeper. And then those are the kinds of shadows that I want to talk about today. As the story of Peter Pan losing his shadow reminds us, in artworks, shadows come and go. Uh, and they are there at the whim of their creator. They can be cut off and put back on depending on what the, the painter or the author wants to do with them. Peter loses his shadow uh, when he's fleeing from uh, the approach of uh, Wendy's parents. It's cut off when a, a window slams shut on it. But then um, he tries to put it back on, and he can't really put it back on because he thinks he can stick it to his feet with soap. Um, and so he is, he is shadowless for a certain point during the uh, course of the story because Peter is not really an, a normal boy, and so the cutting off of his shadow renders him something other than human for that particular moment. I'd like to turn now to some of the issues that artists have faced when they have painted shadows. Look at some of the problems that they have run into along the way. Shadows come in a couple different forms. What artists call modeling shadows or self-shadows are the shadows that we see on objects themselves. They're not cast out. They are just the shadows that make a thing look rounded. So you see the dark shadows under the horse's uh, next there. Those shadows on the actual object called modeling shadows or self-shadows, those have been around a very, very long time, at least 30,000 years. And so we can see that, that people have done these in order to create that three-dimensional uh, effect. But, act, but cast shadows, shadows that are projected outward from objects, 
are actually relatively rare in world civilization. It was only the ancient Greeks who developed an idea of a geometry of light that said if the light is coming from one direction, the shadow will be cast in the other direction if the object is placed in such and such a place. It's interesting to think, but we can't move a shadow. We can only move the light that casts the shadow. So if you think about the great art of the Egyptian or Chinese or Indian civilizations or the Mayan civilization, Central America, there are no shadows. There are no cast shadows in those, in, in those works of art. Only the ancient Greeks uh, did it. Uh, Plato didn't really like shadows, but a lot of his contemporaries did praise the ancient Greek painters such as uh, Apollodorus or Apelles for their way that they use very convincing illusionistic shadows. Uh, we don't have any Greek... Uh, Greek paintings remaining to us, but we do have Roman copies, and they show uh, the shadows. So here you can see shadows there, shadows there, and so on. Cast shadows disappear uh, from, from Western art during the Middle Ages because the holy personage, personages depicted seem to radiate light out from themselves. But uh, one, as soon as we hit the Renaissance, uh, we start to see cast shadows again. Uh, the Italian painter Giotto is usually considered the beginning of uh, the Italian Renaissance, the beginning of, of, of Renaissance painting. And so it makes sense to find the first actual cast shadows uh, after antiquity coming in his work. And so here we see just the faint shadows of the donkey's hooves. Um, and then we also see a shadow cast under Joseph's uh, beard and neck there on his shirt. Cast shadows were rather slow to be adopted because the thing with shadows is they do move and it can be hard to, to pin them down. So, uh, for example, some artists used them when they wanted to but didn't adopt a consistent approach to uh, shadow presentation. So here, um, in this picture by Giovanni Di Paolo, he has decided, oops, uh, hold back, um, he's decided not to put any, any shadows here of the Holy Family uh, on the flight into Egypt. However, back here, these trees have got shadows. And look, there's trees here, these, the plowmen and the oxen. Um, so, and there's some shadows there. So the, the shadows are adopted inconsistently. But two big breakthroughs occurred in the decade of the 1420s. This is really when, when modern shadows, in a sense, come, come into play. Um, the first in... in um, the North, uh, Jan van Eyck painted the Ghent altarpiece, and what he did was he put the altarpiece in, the, in his chapel in such a way that the light which came from over on this side um, actually looked like it was casting shadows onto the frame of the, of the altarpiece. This wooden frame was casting the shadows in toward um, his holy personages. So what you really have, in a sense, is that regular, ordinary Flemish daylight is turning into divine light as it hits the frame and then goes into the space where you see the angel and you see Mary during the, this Annunciation scene. Something similar was going on uh, in Italy, um, in Florence. Masaccio paints a, a, a gospel story, St. Peter healing the sick with his shadow. And here we see St. Peter walking along. He's coming from a church, the source of his power. He casts his shadow and the artist has done this sort of sequentially. So you see this, shadow, this person is waiting to be healed. This person is beginning to stand up, and this person seems to be fully cured. Um, so, but notice that the shadow doesn't really obscure the figures. 
the shadow comes, but the shadow also kind of hits and gets out of the way. And Masaccio established a means of painting the shadow without fully painting the shadow that really became the standard for the next several hundred years. Uh, it became pretty much uh, an unwritten law for painters to make sure that the shadow didn't impinge on the figures that it hit, that it only went um, on their legs. It never rose above their waist. Um, and the whole idea really is to control uh, the presence of the shadow. Now, it's hard to deal with shadows precisely because they don't behave very, very predictably because the rules of the geometry of light are hard for humans to grasp. We're not very good uh, as a species in terms of grasping, uh, grasping spatial things in a, lot, in a lot of senses. John Ruskin said, as soon as you start to look at shadows, you're just amazed by the number of strange ways that it is presented in painting. Here, for example, what uh, Lippo Lippi did was he has shadows coming out from these these beams which are facing us, right? But at right angles, this wall has got the shadows going the same way. Well, the shadows cannot be projected in the same direction if you have um, them actually at right angles. Also, this wall seems to be lit, but this wall has got shadows cast on it. Um, so he's really rather um, arbitrary about his shadows. Part of the problem for painters when they were trying to paint shadows was the fact that... Uh, you encounter what's called the shadow paradox. The shadow, shadow paradox is that a thing for a dark spot on a painting to help us to locate an object, we have to believe that it's a shadow. But for us to believe that it's a shadow, it has to look shadowy. It has to do the sorts of things that shadows do. And um, in particular, it has to seem rather evanescent. And that's difficult in painting because we're used to either shadows moving or else being able to see right through the shadows. And so in an opaque medium, it's very hard to get the, uh, the lightness or darkness of the shadow just right. So one of the things that artists did as a way around this so that to make sure that our eyes and our mind would register shadows um, is to use what are called copycat shadows. So what you do is, if you want to make sure that you know that this is a shadow of... Uh, Madonna and child, you make it shaped like the Madonna and child so that people will instantly recognize it. Of course, this is actually painted right around the corner of a wall, and so that shadow would be distorted in reality if this were real life. But the artist has taken pains to really make sure that those um, shadows register. But of course, if the light is coming from over here, then these shadows, uh, this wall should not really be in the light, and yet it's got, it is in the light, and there are shadows cast there, and there are inconsistent shadows over here as well. Slow as it was and difficult as it was for painters to work with shadows, eventually they did become fairly comfortable with them, and it began to be seen that if you didn't have a shadow, well, you didn't really have a good painting. And so by 1502, when Luca, Luca Signorelli is illustrating um, Dante's um, uh, Divine Comedy, he actually goes and he's illustrating the story when Dante is walking through purgatory, and the people, the souls, the dead souls in purgatory say, Look, he's casting a shadow. And see, this is Dante and this is Virgil. And they say, look, he's casting a shadow. That must mean he's alive. And they all stand back and wonder and say, how can it possibly be that there are living people here in purgatory with us? But what Signorelli has done, because he's more of a painter than he is an interpreter of Dante, he actually has given his souls shadows. <laughs> so they have shadows, even though they're looking at Dante saying, well, he's got a shadow and we don't. 
So I think this shows us something about the mentality of the artist that the shadow had seemed, come to seem absolutely essential. Leonardo is very important in the history of shadows because he had very clear ideas about them. He was going to write a whole book about them. In the end, just a few pages of his manuscript remain. But he did insist that shadow is more powerful, a more powerful agent than light, for it can impede and entirely deprive bodies of their light. Light too conspicuously cut off by shadows is exceedingly disproved of by painters. So what you do then, if you're worried about that, is you try to really minimize uh, your cast shadows by creating a soft, diffused light that won't produce attention-getting shadows and that will, that will cause dark patches to cover over things that you, you might want to really show to good effect. So Leonardo was tremendously important because his writing and then also his example showed people how to do that. In this picture, for example, there are lots of dark places, but there are no cast shadows that will distract from the central activity here. Leonardo's device, uh, advice was, was followed so seriously, um, so assiduously, that in the early 1600s, when a movement called tenebrism came along, it really stood out as, as a very unusual kind of thing. And two of the key players in that are Caravaggio and Rembrandt. I just have time today to, to look at Rembrandt. Rembrandt is really interesting. He's a total master of shadows. And here in this early self-portrait, when he's quite a young man, he portrays himself as having, in a sense, shadow-struck vision. It's the shadow of his hair come across his eyes, as if to say, everything I see is in some way or another influenced by the shadows that I find around me in the world. There's a really good example and a really interesting and almost revolutionary shadow that comes up in his famous painting, The Night Watch. Uh, you see here um, this shadow that is just sort of there by itself. It looks like the shadow of a hand. And it takes a while to realize what's going on here. What is going on here is that the shadow is being cast by this hand and it's moving down like this. And if you spend a little time uh, studying the picture, you gradually realize this is the captain of the guard and this is his lieutenant. So the captain of the guard is gesticulating and showing that this guard, the, the, the night watch, is important, that it's heroic, that it's brave, that it's prepared, that it's ready to defend the city. And the shadow is doing what the man is talking about. The shadow is reaching for the spear, as if to, say, to activate all of the notions of bravery and preparedness that the uh, painting is, is proposing. Two developments in the 19th century um, are also quite significant in the history of shadows. Uh, I'm sure you're aware that uh, color in shadows comes in with the, with the Impressionists, um, but actually that was commented on back in the 18th century by the, um, uh, the French philosopher and critic Denis Diderot. Um, but the Impressionists are the first to systematically uh, really work with color in shadows. At the same time that Monet is really taking these shadows of the haystacks very seriously, however, a bunch of post-impressionists were working in the opposite direction. Gauguin and others were saying at about this time, you know, we've been using shadows to make things look realistic for the past couple hundred years, and it's just part of the box of tricks that painters have. And after all, painting really is two-dimensional. It's just putting colors on a flat surface. So why should we bother with shadows at all? We really should stick to outlines and so on. So we don't need shadows. We can dispense with them. So here... Emile Bernard, who was a friend of Gauguin, um, leaves out the shadows of his humans. However, he has put in a shadow of this boat, the overhang right here. 
So the, sh the shadows are inconsistent. Going back again to that um, early Renaissance idea that you put them in when you want them, but you don't feel that you're tied to a consistency of uh, presentation when it comes to the light in a scene. Uh, what I'm going to do now um, is turn to a particular way of looking at shadows. Uh, we've seen up to this point that shadows can be used for a variety of purposes. They can conceal and reveal. Um, they can point out various things. The shadow can be the center of a story, as in the Masaccio painting. But it's my belief that really, uh, if you look at shadows, um, step back and look at all the shadows in paintings, they really break down into just four categories. I think if we look at the way that shadows have a relationship with what casts them, um, we can understand shadows a lot better um, than we do. So I've written a book, Grasping Shadows, about this topic and try to um, explain what I think is going on um, with these four kinds of shadows. Shadows can either, can, can either emanate from objects or they don't, and they can appear cut off from them or they don't, and they can also um, be realistic on the one hand or, or they can just go off on their own in a, in a really magical sort of way. So I'm going to turn right now to a, a few quotations from Dickens to help explain uh, what I mean by these four types of shadows, and then I'll go into some examples. Uh, in A Christmas Carol, Dickens tells us that the mere mention of Scrooge is enough to cast a dark shadow on the party of the Cratchits. The shadow, in a sense, is emanating from Scrooge's cheapness and cruelty, um, and so uh, we feel the influence of Scrooge by the mere mention of his name. Uh, at the end of Bleak House, Dickens tells us about um, the decrepit Sir Lester Dedlock, who is the decrepit shadow of his former self. So this is the opposite of the influential shadow, the shadow like Scrooge. It's a shadow that is not substance. It's merely a shadow. It tells us to look elsewhere um, from what's, what, where it is in order to find out the real solid thing um, that is behind it. In this case, it's a it's the former Celeste, who's really a, a big force earlier in the novel. The third kind of shadow is a shadow that is detachable. Now, those first two shadows are the ordinary kinds of shadows we see in everyday life. But here now we're dealing with shadows that can be found only in art, these last two shadows. In Little Dorrit, Dickens uses a third kind of shadow, a fanciful shadow that can be lost or regained to complete a person. Little Dorrit tells the story of this um, young woman who has a particular shadow that she keeps. It's a shadow of a loved one who has gone away. And so she holds the shadow and, and, and keeps, it, keeps it by her um, and, and treasures it. And then finally, um, Dickens envisioned a, an independent shadow. He wanted to create a magical figure um, called the shadow who could spy all over London. And um, he described it this way. It would be a certain shadow which may go into any place by sunlight, moonlight, starlight, firelight, candlelight, and be in all homes and all nooks and corners, a kind of semi-initient, omnipresent, intangible creature. I want him to loom as a fanciful thing all over London. As these examples show, the strong shadows project the inner quality of the caster. The weaker shadows cause us to look elsewhere for the real thing. Sometimes they reinforce realism by sending us elsewhere in space, but sometimes they send us elsewhere in time. The third kind of shadow, a detachable shadow, 
um, is not really possible in real life, but it's what's needed to become fully human. It can be gained or lost. And finally, independent shadows are those which appear without a caster. The shadow itself is the center of attention. Oftentimes, this kind of shadow, particularly in literature, is connected with dark forces and fears. It's been connected with Jung's idea of the unconscious as a shadow, and so on. Anyhow, let's look at these four shadows in more detail and see how they work. The first shadow, as I said, is a vital shadow. It's a conventionally attached shadow, but there's something about it that says, look at me, pay attention to me. I am connected to the inner being of the thing uh, that is casting me. And of course, this shadow is the shadow that is associated with soul. So I have here three quotations uh, that, that work along with that idea. Every man casts a shadow, not his body only, but his imperfectly mingled spirit. That's Thoreau. Then the next from a famous art historian. Throughout the world, the shadow is considered an outgrowth, outgrowth of the object that casts it. The second filmy self of the person is identical with or related to his soul or vital power. And then this third quotation from Leonardo. Shadow is the manifestation by bodies of their forms. The forms of the bodies don't show their particularities without shadow. Leonardo actually thought that the shadows were coming from the bodies rather than being projected by the light. He saw shadows emanating from bodies, and so the body spoke its form through the shadow that was projected, which is one reason he felt it was tremendously important to control the shadows so they wouldn't just go anywhere and mess up a painting. So, um, <clears throat> the story of how Western art began, at least according to the Greeks and the Romans, has to do with the shadow. And this is the story. It's a story told by Pliny the Elder, Roman historian. Butates, a potter of Sion, was the first who invented at Corinth the art of modeling portraits. It was through his daughter that he made the discovery, who, being deeply in love with a young man about to depart on a long journey, traced the profile of his face as thrown upon the wall by the light of the lamp. So here's an 18th century uh, version of that story. We see the young lady. She has her stylus. She's tracing the profile of her young lover. Um, He's about to go away. The story doesn't tell us any more about this, but it's usually theorized that he's going to die, and the only thing she's going to have left is his outline, his shadow, his silhouette. Uh, early uh, 19th, 18th century silhouettes, uh, when they were first invented and became very popular, were called shadow graphs sometimes, or just shadows of people. And uh, they were often made by tracing shadows. Anyway, there was a great vogue in the 18th century for shadow tracing, but the idea of this goes goes a long way back. And what's interesting also in terms of art history is the dynamic of who does the tracing. Here, our Bartolome Moria uh, painted this picture called The Origin of Painting. Um, and there's a scroll that you'll see here. And it says in Spanish, from the shadow emerged the painting that you admire so much. In other words, art started just by tracing a shadow. But now look. We can paint walls, we can paint people, we can do foliage, and all this kind of stuff. We can create real pictorial space, but it all came from this simple tracing. Murillo painted this picture um, when he became president of the Artists Guild in Seville, and so it was his presentation piece, and it hung in a special chapel that was dedicated uh, to, to artists. What's interesting in terms of the history of the shadow tracing motif, though, is that it's a man tracing a man, and other men 
look on and say, wow, great job. This is really interesting. However, we get into the 19th century, we have a new figure um, because there are many versions of the story. Some people take away the idea of the lamplight and they say, no, the first shadow was traced by a shepherd with his staff and he was tracing it in the sand in the sun outside. Here we have the shepherds. We have a rock to do the tracing on, but we have a third person kind of come in, a sort of art director. She's positioning the head of the young woman. Notice it's a young woman and not a young man. And there's a man doing the tracing. So the male artist gets more and more into the, into the story. Um, but here the, the woman has not fully lost artistic control. And then you have a couple of sheep looking on. Um, more recently, the tracing has become a woman-to-woman -woman affair. As so we have a sort of feminist rendering of the story where we leave the men out entirely. So now we have a woman tracing woman. Debutates um, means daughter of butates. Um, so this is the idea that, that now um, in the 21st century, the tracing is still going on. And now we're back, after all, to the women who are the artists. So anytime we see a shadow that looks to us that it's expressing something particular, expressing something particular about the inner being of what's casting it, we're in the presence of, of what I call the vital shadow or the expressive shadow or the strong shadow. And here um, we see the the thoughts of the young man, sort of like a, a, a body aspiring upward as, he, as he's reading by lamplight. In this uh, well-known picture by Courbet, Courbet has painted himself um, with a really strong individual shadow, while these people are in the shadow of, these people who are paying homage to him are just um, in the shadow of a tree. They don't have their own particularized shadows. But Courbet's shadow is going onto a milestone because this is a milestone in his career, and this leads us points right back to the stagecoach, which is heading off to Paris because he is off at the beginning of a great career. Um, here we have two very distinctive shadows toward the end of the 19th century in this picture by Emile Friant. Here we're really kind of activating the idea that shadows becomes, becomes a strong idea in the 19th century, and then particularly in the 20th century with Freud and Jung, that shadows represent sexual desire or impulses of one sort or another. So, the young woman is turning away, but the man's shadow is right there with her. So the shadow is, is looking for the kiss. Um, meanwhile, her shadow is trying to get away. Um, and of course, movies uh, were tremendously influenced by what was going on in painting. And as soon as film was invented, it started working with the full shadow repertoire of the things that, that had been done with shadows in literature um, and in painting. Um, so here we have um, a, a still from the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and we start to see the, the inner power and, 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 and uh, threatening quality of, uh, of the doctor with the way his, his grasping hand um, is stretched out in the shadow. But if the shadow can project strength, that same shadow can also, in a sense, project weakness. Uh, going back now to the, to the 1400s, uh, the story of St. Wolfgang is that he was such a great saint that he was able to overpower the devil. And he forced the devil to actually participate in saying the Mass. So here's the devil holding up the gospel um, while uh, St. Wolfgang uh, pronounces the holy words. And because the power and the presence of God is, is strong here, the shadow that's coming from the devil, the devil's hooves, are, is just really not even able to touch the saint. He has, um, he has managed to shrink that evil shadow of the, of the devil. 
we move on to our second shadow, uh, the look elsewhere shadow, that's a shadow, it's the shadow that really is dealing with most of the, the ordinary shadows that we see in painting and that we tend to discard because we're really looking at the object that these um, shadows uh, reinforce. It's a shadow that by its supportive role or foreshadowing quality says, look somewhere else for the real thing. Um, these shadows, of course, are very important if you're doing kind of any kind of trompe l'oeil painting so that um, the shadows here under the book or of the man's hat, it makes it look like he's projecting into space. But once again, showing us how convincing you know, it is that this, this um, painting jumps out at us. And the interesting thing for me about these kinds of reinforcing shadows is, on the one hand, they're nothing. And, on, and also, we don't tend to think, take them very seriously. And yet, somehow, because they are nothing, they make something else look like something. They give substance to something by being non-substantive. Shadows have this very interesting supporting role. So those shadows make things stand out. Velasquez, on the other hand, was, was noted for what uh, critics have called the imperceptible shadow. He painted shadows so naturally that people didn't tend to really register them, um, that the whole thing is very subtly lit. And we see shadows, but we're not really thinking about the shadows. We're thinking about the bodies turning in space and so on. Um, so. Then there are shadows that foreshadow in a, in a very, um, sometimes a, a semi-comic sort of way. We have the sailor taking leave of his girl. He is pleading with her, but his hand is gesturing perhaps toward the future. Does this look to you like a woman holding a child in her lap? Um, and is that a warning to the young woman? Or is he saying, you know, settle down and we'll have a family? Um, or is that what she's going to end up with, just her and the child while he's off at sea? This is a very serious foreshadow, the shadow of death. So Jesus is stretching after a hard day's work in the carpenter shop. And behind him, oops, sorry, behind him on the wall, um, there's a rack of um, carpenter's tools, but they're looking just like the cross. And so the implements of the torture, the nails, and so on. And there are a lot of other things in the picture that Holman Hunt has used to uh, anticipate the crucifixion. So that the, 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 the headgear here will anticipate the crown of thorns. This figure here is actually Mary. She's been looking in the chest for all the treasures that the, that the three kings have left. And she's pulled out a bit of a crown here. Um, and she's suddenly realizing that all of those strange uh, uh, things that happened when this child was born, look where it's all going to lead. Now, these, these look elsewhere shadows are kind of funny because they can work in, in very unexpected ways. In recent years, in the last 10, 20 years, artists have started, started working with real shadow in their work. And so they create works where they deliberately make something that will cast a shadow. And the reason I call these part of the category number two, look elsewhere shadow, is simply they keep us looking back and forth from the thing that casts it to the... To, 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 to an image, and then we're not quite, quite sure what's what. Here, it's a bunch of crumpled up wire. This is what the artist has made. But you turn a light on it, and it makes the image of nesting boxes. Something that's kind of all curved and twisted turns out into something that is actually quite geometric, rectilinear, and so on and so forth. And we ask ourselves, like, where is the actual work of art? Is it in, hit? Is it in the shadow, or is it in the, in the physical object that has cast the shadow?
Uh, here's another much more complex version of the same thing. Uh, Tim Noble and Sue Webster are British artists, and they took a year's worth of their own personal rubbish, and they glued it all together, and it casts a shadow that shows them sitting down contemplating the fact that real life is rubbish. So they look pretty unhappy. So where is the artwork? Is the artwork there, or is the artwork there? Or is it both? You have to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in order to, to deal with this kind of strange artwork where the shadows are a real part of, of the artwork. If we get on to the third kind of shadow, the completing shadow, that's a shadow that can only really be found um, in some sort of magical setting. It can't happen in real life. But it's a situation in which a shadow can come off or be reattached or be attached um, that shows that the person who has the shadow is in some way a full participant in what it means to be human. Um, and if the shadow is not there, then that person somehow does not fully partake of humanity. It's a thing that I certainly didn't realize when I began studying shadows that from a certain point of view, Christianity is founded on a shadow. This is from the Gospel of St. Luke. Mary asked the angel, how is this immaculate conception going to work? How am I going to be, um, give birth to this child since I do not know man? And the angel replied, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, also that holy thing shall be born of thee, shall be called the Son of God. So we see here um, that the artist has put light coming in the window, which is creating the shadow behind the angel and so on. But then he's got this curious shadow that comes in this way. It takes a while to figure this out, and you can't figure it out from one painting. But if you look at a whole bunch of them, and particularly if you read certain medieval documents, you find out the medieval idea that Christ is a column. And the column is Christ, which means he is the church. He physically represents the church. So in paintings, the shadow of the column represents the presence of Jesus. And so the shadow is sort of him both arriving in the form of God the Father, but also being created in the form of God the Son. And so in another painting of which we actually do see a, a row of columns, and the one particular one is sort of coming across from the corner and then up under Mary's skirt. Um, here in Goya's picture, we have something that I think is familiar to us from films and, and fantasy novels, namely the fact that the dead or the supernatural do not cast shadows. So here, the man being carried off by the witches and the witches themselves, they cast no shadow on the ground. We only see the shadow of the man who's terrorized and running away with a sheet covering his head. This man's here is crouching on the ground. He doesn't want to see it. Um, so there are no shadows here because we're in the presence of magic. One of the big hits of the early part of the 19th century was a story called Peter Schlemiel, The Adventures of Peter Schlemiel. Um, it was very popular in, in Britain in the 1820s and in addition illustrated by George Cruikshank. And it's still very well known on the continent, but it's less known in Britain and the United States. But Peter wants to become somebody in the world. He wants to become a remarkable person. And a man comes up to him and says, well, if you just sell me your shadow, um, I'll give you this purse um, that is full of gold and you can never spend all the gold that's in this purse. Um, and so Peter says, great, I want to, I want to have fame and fortune. And so he sells his shadow, and here we see the shadow being, being wrapped up and taken away. Um, what he doesn't realize, of course, is that he sold his shadow to the devil, 
And nobody will have anything to do with a, to, with a man with, who does, has no shadow. So as soon as he starts to meet people and people see he has no shadow, they recognize that some kind of magical dealing has happened and people flee from him. And so he starts to go out only at night. He finally finds a girlfriend and everything is wonderful and they're walking along in the dark and he's proposing marriage. But the moon comes out from behind the clouds and she sees that he has no shadow and she runs screaming away. Um, so if you're a man without a shadow, you have no recourse to, to human um, companionship. And so Peter eventually ends up living all by himself in a cave with a dog um, and separate, separated from humanity for the rest of his life. Here's another example of the fact that you need the shadow in order to be human. Um, this illustration by the great French artist Delacroix, you see that there are um, no shadows really um, at the at Hamlet's father's ghost there, although there's just a little bit of something, though, to make sure that he looks grounded. Um, so this is, this is the way artists have it both ways. Hamlet is very much alive, and he's got a really good shadow, but the ghost is just sort of barely anchored. Uh, maybe the armor's wearing him down. If we go back to Peter Pan, we can see more clearly now why Peter gets his shadow reattached. You remember in the story that Wendy um, hears him crying because he can't put the shadow back on. She says, boy, why are you crying? He says, I can't get my shadow on. And she sews it on for him, right? It's domestic uh, ability that she has. And he realizes that if she comes away with him to Never Never Land, then he, she can tell stories um, to all the boys and be like a mother. So <clears throat> getting the shadow... For Peter, it begins to get a family, get a human connection, and so on. Um, <clears throat> and the, so the re reattaching of the shadow is a bringing of Peter into the human community here. If you're emotionally dead, also you don't have a shadow. So Edward Munch, post-impressionist, takes advantage of that particular moment in our history where the shadow is dispensable. And so his, his characters here in, in a number of paintings like this, you see the setting sun and everything, but that setting sun is casting no shadow at the feet of these people who are very much alienated from each other. In 1951, Robert Rauschenberg stunned the art world when he exhibited the white paintings. These were paintings, he took, he took a roller of the sort you would use on a living room wall, and he got some white house paint, and he just went like this, and he just covered the canvas with nothing but white paint. And he exhibited it. And people said, huh? This was just immediately after abstract expressionism. And people thought abstract expressionism, at least, is the heroic gesture of the suffering artist. And it's, it's you know, whatever is inside a person like Jackson Pollock, there it is all swirled and twirled and, and dripped on the canvas. Rauschenberg said, well, here's paint on a canvas. And so there don't seem, it seems to be the abstract expression, painting like this seems to be the end of shadows, the end of representation. But Rauschenberg himself said, when I exhibited this, you could just, the, the shadows were so, the, the, the paintings were so sensitive that they seemed to, you could tell how many people were in the room um, because they just sort of subtly changed um, shade and tone um, because of the quality of the light. And his uh, friend, the, uh, the, the famous uh, composer John Cage said, these are airports of the light and shadows, these white paintings so that your shadows are landing on them and taking off all the time. Um, the um, very realistic painter and, and the sort of conceptual painter, Mark Tanzi, um, did a whole series of pictures where he, he um, examines the history of the art. And he was not at all convinced by Rauschenberg's uh, theories. And so he did this picture. 
um, in response to the white paintings. Here's a man with the same white paint in the roller, um, but he's painting over his own shadow. Now, the shadow itself is up against, if you look carefully at it, you can figure out that this is actually the judgment wall from Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel. And this is Christ in majesty here being rolled over in white. So Tansy is saying, you cover over a shadow, you cover over Western civilization, you cover over Western history, you take pretty much take the humanity out of painting. You take everything that people have been striving for for thousands of years, and you just obliterate it. So Tansy was not at all convinced by this. But... I think it goes to show my point that having the shadow is part of full participation in human life. Finally, the independent shadow is the shadow that can exist and act without a visible caster. This is the shadow that just is there, and the object is not there. The shadow acts as its own um, agent. Gauguin commented on this toward the end of the 19th century. If instead of a figure, you put the shadow only of a person, that is an original point of departure, the strangeness of which you have calculated. The main person behind all this was William Collins, who started this back in 1833. You see here the approaching um, rider, and so the gate has been opened for the rider here. This was picked up by Jerome in a painting called Golgotha, and the first time in the history of the crucifixion, we have the crucifixion, but we don't see it. It's present in the form of the shadows. William Rimner picked it up and did this, where a man is sitting in shadow. He's fleeing, but the shadows are approaching. So we get the sense of the chase, the, the nearing shadows. So this motif of the, um, the approaching shadow becomes quite common toward the end of the 19th century. We get into the metaphysical painting of de Chirico. We see this approaching figure here, which counterpoints this figure here. Picasso did the shadow on the woman in 1953. And you see sort of a nude model here. And this sort of represents the artist because there's a sort of a hand there. And the part of the model that's covered by the shadow is sort of reddish to suggest maybe an erotic quality to the shadow's covering. Some people have said this is the shadow is taking, is taking a sexual liberty here. Some people say it is, wish, it is just wishful thinking on the part of, of, of Picasso because this was painted the day after his wife uh, had left him, taking the children with her. Um, and so that this is, the shadow, Picasso is just a shadow of himself now. This self-shadow is a tremendously popular motif in photography. Um, the Lee Freelander, who's an American photographer, has made a career of taking pictures of his shadows cast on various things. And here, the, the fur on the collar turns into his, his hair in a, in a really nice way. And of course, in movies, it's often the case that the shadow is much more important and dynamic and has, carries a lot more emotional impact uh, than seeing the thing itself. So here's Mickey Mouse chopping the uh, water-carrying broom in Fantasia. I want to finish and uh, conclude today um, with a, just a brief examination of this painting um, by Renoir. It's called Le Pont des Arts. It was painted in Paris in um, 1867. It was the year of a World's Fair there. And you see that there's a lot of hustle and bustle. Oops. Um, hustle and bustle here. There's crowds waiting to get on some boats, the bateau mouche. Um, there's people coming down here. The Pont des Arts is in the background there, actually. Um, but Renoir has done something really interesting here. He has um, 
created this independent shadow that underlies the whole picture here. And we realized from the shadow that the artist is actually standing underneath a bridge that's overhead. And that bridge is the uh, Pont du Carousel, an iron bridge that we can't see. Um, and the, these are the pedestrians on it. And these pedestrians echo, in a sense, the pedestrians over here on this bridge, which is the Pont des Arts. Um, this is painted the same year that Jérôme painted that crucifixion I just showed you. So instead of a holy day, we have a holiday. Instead of Jerusalem, we have Paris. And instead of something immensely religious and significant, we have just an ordinary day, people out for a good time. So Renoir is expressing this sense of secular understanding of life and of shadows. But he's giving us these shadows and these shadow people as if to say, you know, what's underlying, you know, the upper sunny world up here is a shadow world down here. And that these people are, in a sense, crossing, ready to cross the river Styx um, and become um, these people here will become these people here. Eventually, we will all turn into shadows. Art is, in many ways, a shadow of life. And so he's actually getting the idea of that in a literal sense by presenting uh, the shadow world as underlying um, the, the world, the tangible world that we see in frolic in here. You remember the Murillo picture, um, uh, the origin of painting, where he shows the man tracing another man and so on to show that that's where painting began. Uh, Renoir is doing the same thing here for us. He's showing this by simple tracing of a human outline, art began, and look what now art can do for us. It can do all this. It can do this wonderful, amazing, impressionist rendition of the world, um, but it all came from the shadow, and the shadow is where we're all going to. So um, I hope this helps you uh, understand shadows a little bit better than you did when you came in. Um, and this has been of interest to you. Um, my whole point here really is that shadows are worth the trouble. And if we spend more time looking at them, um, we will uh, really be amply rewarded. And if you have any interest in pursuing the, the topic further, uh, this talk is based on, on this book that I've just published. And in it, I also go into shadows in literature and in photography and film. So thank you very much for your attention.